Thank you, John. Those are good words. And uh, we have a divided teaching today, I think. I'm going to talk for a while, and then several other people are going to talk for a while. And in the meantime, we're going to be listening to the one that uh, John has indicated we want to be listening to. Thank you, Mary, so much for that blessed meditation on I love uh, uh, old John so much because he speaks with such simplicity. He just, his words fall from him like stones fall from your hand. They're just very simple and powerful. Now this morning I, I'm going to talk for a little while about living through the power of the Spirit. Living through the power of the Spirit. Let's spend a little time talking about living. Life is an activity. It is a, an activity that is self-initiating, self-directing, self-sustaining. That's what life is. That's what distinguishes living things from dead things. It's activity. Now, there are various kinds of life. So plant life is one kind of life, and uh, animal life is another kind, and human life is another kind, and spiritual life is another kind. And life, the kinds of life are distinguished by the sorts of things they do. Plants eat dirt. Kittens, kittens don't eat dirt unless they're sick. Uh, plants don't chase marbles around the floor. Kittens do. Right? That's kitten life. We saw a plant chasing a marble around the floor, we would realize something was wrong, or at least out of order. Right? And uh, so life is distinguished by the kind of activity that it engages in. Human life is distinguished by a kind of power of the will to accomplish things that have a wide range. The human will is able to have a very wide range uh, because it has conceptualization, conceptualization that allows it to think over a wide range. That's part of what God has put in us, you see. Now, your dog will not lie out on the back porch <coughs> worrying, worrying about whether or not it has enough bones laid up for its declining years. Right? <laughs> it won't do that. It knows where a bone or two are, but it doesn't think that way. You see, human beings do that. Human beings can worry like no other species because they have that capacity. But there is another form of life which is human beings are meant for, and that is spiritual life. The primary function of the will in the human being is to rely upon God. And that's what we are made to do, to rely upon God. We talked last time about Genesis 126, 
and we talked about how God made human beings and said, let them have dominion. And uh, dominion, as we mentioned, started out with fish and wound up with creeping things. Uh, in general, life on earth, they're responsible for it. By the time you get to Psalm 8, you're asking the same question, and, and by that time you have domesticated animals. So the first thing on the list in Psalm 8 is sheep. Probably you haven't seen one yet this morning, uh, because now uh, our dominion is in terms of Twitter and computers and all kinds of stuff, and now uh, we can send money all the way around the world to someone who needs it just by pushing a few buttons. And see, that's human dominion. That's what God had in mind. That is a faded remnant of what he had in mind when he said, go forth and replenish and populate the earth. Now, it was all meant to work in a way where God was in governance over human life, and he was the primary agent, and we would act together under him. The human dominion is to be under God's dominion. So now when we are in the process of redemption, we're on the way back to where we were meant to be in the first place, right? That's what redemption is about. It's about buying back the lost human project as well as the individuals that are caught up in that process. Now Jesus comes and above all, he shows us what it's like to live under God. And you may recall that John said of Jesus that God does not give the Spirit to him by measure. See, now you and me, it's like God has to have a little eyedropper of the Spirit and he just squeezes out a little drop <laughs> because that's all we can stand. See? Because God himself is unlimited power. And human beings are obsessed with power. Again, that's a part of their nature. But they do not think of it in terms of character. Jesus had the character that would allow for him to have unlimited power. And that is why, as Philippians 2 tells us, he humbled himself. He poured himself out and became obedient even to the death of the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. Guess what? He didn't even ask for it. But he had the character where, as John the Baptist said, God could give the Spirit to him without measuring it out. Now, our need is to have that same spirit. And so first, 
the incarnation comes into history and then the spirit is given in succession to Jesus. And Jesus sets the model for human beings of what life is to be like and then the spirit is given to help us be like that. So living through the power of the Spirit, which is the title of our session, um, is a matter of learning how to allow the Holy Spirit to be such a part of our lives that we can accomplish the will of God for us and around us in what we do. Now let me give you a couple of passages and for the purposes of my time this morning, I'm going to be talking in the context of people who do things like go out and start churches in areas, plant churches, um, if you wish with that language, but we go out and we undertake to begin a body of believers in a particular area, because that's what a church is. Sometimes we talk about the local church, but uh, really that's the only one we have much to do with. It's dangerous to talk about the church generally because God is the only one who ever sees that. And uh, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, he knows what he's doing with it. And we don't. We hardly know what we're doing with our little local group. <laughs> and, and actually we don't have to because we are working with the Holy Spirit who is with us. And he makes Jesus the Lord of our church. And our problem is actually just to get out of the way. Be there, but not be in the way. Right. Now here's a wonderful thing that Jesus said uh, when he was getting ready to leave. This is John 16, uh, verse 7 and following. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the paraclete will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's a great pleasure to me to know that that's his job and not my job. I don't have to convict the world. That's his business, and it's because he knows how to do it, and I don't. That's, that's why. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Now this is what the Holy Spirit will do. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. There are so many other things, he says, that I would like to tell you, but you can't stand it now. You'll get it later, because the Holy Spirit will come, and he will give it to you in a way that you can receive it. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. Now, Jesus was aware that as long as he was here 
in the flesh, as we say, he was an obstruction to the power of the Spirit coming into the lives of the very people he was training. Now this is a part of the understanding of death and resurrection in Jesus. Death, among other things, was Jesus' way of getting out of the way of the Spirit. Limited to the flesh, he could not be present everywhere he needed to be, as he can now through the Holy Spirit, which brings him everywhere he needs to be. That's the nature of spirit. We'll say just a, more, a little more about that in just a minute. But he had to get out of the way, and that is why you can't find his body anywhere. Do you, any of you know another person whose body disappeared? Moses. Anyone else? Elijah. Anyone else? Enoch. Why do you suppose that's true? What would they have done with Moses' body if they had it? You can bet they would have worshipped it. They would have made an idol of it. They would have fought over it. Who gets it? Let's see. So this is a very deep lesson now about bodily existence generally. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. But the second of the Ten Commandments warns us carefully about letting any bodily thing on earth, above earth, below earth be held up as something to look towards and worship. And God knows human beings have this terrible tendency to idolatry anyway. If they can't find a dead body, they'll make one out of something, and then they'll worship that. So now the Spirit coming is to allow the presence of God to be personally accessible in ways that a, an embodied person could never be. And God, of course, himself took, he took very great care, care with this. And if you read Deuteronomy 4, for example, you'll see how careful he was to avoid any image. He said, you never saw a form. You heard a voice. It's hard to worship a voice. Think about it. <laughs> but over the Ark of the Covenant, no form ever appeared. A voice was heard because of the human tendency to want to hold on to something and control it, and the Spirit forbids it. It forbids it. Now listen to these words from Acts chapter 1. When they had come together, verse 6, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it that this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. Now see, that is the human tendency. Wouldn't you please give us a physical government? Because by the way, we have ideas about the part we could play in that. <laughs> <laughs> and 
of course, that, that's what they had in mind. I mean, you remember they had controversies about this, uh, who was going to be <laughs> Chancellor of the Exeter and so forth. And uh, uh, Jesus says, now it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to Washington, D.C. <laughs> this is the uttermost parts of the earth. Right. You will cause them to know. Remember the earlier passage from John was about people coming to know, to be convicted, to be convinced. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to bear witness. And we bear witness only as he is upon us. And thank God we don't have to make it happen. That's one of the great reliefs of stepping into the easy yoke with Jesus is we no longer pull the load. We're there and we do something, but for us, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, if you're under a heavy yoke, a hard yoke, and if the burden you're carrying is not light, you need to shift some weight to someone else. The burden of making things happen, of securing outcomes, is one of the things that we as servants of Christ must learn not to do. We are not in charge of outcomes. We may work hard and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that, it's good for you. We may prepare the best we can for what we have to do, put our best energy and our intelligence into it, but we do not carry the load. The Holy Spirit is here to carry the load. Now, I want to take most of my time just to clear up some things about the Spirit because it is, it is I think, confusing to many people. For one thing, we need to say that the spiritual as a category is bigger than the Holy Spirit. The spiritual. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 6 where he's got some people upset because he said you're supposed to drink my blood and eat my flesh. Uh, and he says, uh, the flesh does not profit. The spirit profits. The words that I speak to you are spirit. They are life. Now that's not the same as the Holy Spirit. The law, Paul says in Romans 7, is spiritual. It's a good thing. It's spiritual. It has great power. It just doesn't give life. It's spiritual. So now in general, the spiritual refers to a certain kind of reality. 
I like to just use the phrase that spirit is unbodily personal power. Unbodily personal power. To say it's personal means that it deals in the area of thoughts, of feelings, of will, choices, uh, and there are many, many parts of this. There are evil spirits. And an evil spirit is basically, and there are various levels of that, is a combination of thought, will, and feeling that is complicated enough to take on a sort of life of its own. That's an evil spirit. It's unbodily, personal power, it's just it's on the wrong side, right? And then it loves to destroy what is good, and the reason they're called unclean spirits is because they always make a mess. <laughs> they do. I mean, you just watch them. They always make a mess. And um, so their angels are spirits, see? Unbodily personal power. Now, I just go through that quickly because I do want you to realize that the Holy Spirit is not just the general category of the Spirit. You are a Spirit. You are unbodily personal power. Now, you are defined in terms of a body, but your body is not you. Right? Uh, and this, in our culture, it's very important to understand that because our culture will say, no, you are your body, probably your brain or something of that sort. Um, but your brain is a relatively more interesting piece of meat. That's all it is. It's not you. You're not in there. It's God's way of mediating between you and your body and your world for now. But it's not you. And that's why Jesus said, if you live in me and in my word, you will never experience death. You'll never see death. And the reason you won't, because when that point comes, you will be so engaged with other things that you won't be paying any attention to your body. You are a spiritual being. Um, among other things, that means you are not visible. And you aren't. Your body's visible. And fundamentally, your body is a way that we learn to use to hide ourselves. You are a spiritual being. One reason why we so delight in little children is because they are not able yet to hide their spirit. Their little souls are just right out there. <laughs> and they can't close their face. And you grow up and you learn how to do that and perhaps come to the point you can't even find yourself after a while. You have to pay someone $250 an hour to help you. <laughs> help you find you. <laughs> okay, now it's important to understand that the Holy Spirit is a unique person. 
One of the things that characterizes the Holy Spirit is he is not incarnational in the way the Son is incarnational. The Logos is essentially incarnational. The Spirit is not. The Spirit hovered over the waters at creation. The Spirit hovers. It's the original hovercraft. Right? It hovers. And, and we are granted the wonderful advantage of having him hover over us and hover over our meetings and hover over our community and actually I think he would be willing to hover over our nation and he would like to hover over the whole world right? but being a person he has the sensitivity of a person. And um, uh, so there is a, an aspect of our relationship to him that depends upon our acknowledgement, recognition, and welcoming. One of the most fascinating things struck me many years ago as I studied the scripture was you can resist the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Well, you remember he's a person. And persons don't like to be where they're not wanted. You don't want to go to a party where they don't want you. Right? Unless you're a mean person and you want to cause trouble. And then you're called a party crasher. <laughs> right? But the spirit is not routinely a party crasher. You can resist him. Moreover, you can grieve him. And the scriptures speak repeatedly of grieving the Holy Spirit. That's one of the most fascinating pictures in all of the scripture to me. Is the Holy Spirit being grieved. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Primarily by ignoring him. By not welcoming him. Here he has come. He, he is given to us. He moves into our life. We are even sealed by the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians 5 talks about how he is the down payment on the spiritual house that we're going to move into. He's the down payment. The wonderful language about the Holy Spirit. But he can still be ignored. And um, more or less when we come to the place to where we're so busy with what we're doing that we don't acknowledge him and welcome him and invite him into what we're doing, then he is grieved. Now resistance is another stage up from grieving because in resisting people are aware of his presence but reject and that's what Peter uh, star Stephen was talking about just before they killed him 
You stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit? So now he comes in many ways. He comes in anointing. Anointing is a temporarily, temporary presence for a specific purpose, an anointing. It's, it's the presence of the Spirit on you for a specific purpose. You welcome, you invite, and he comes. Baptism. Baptism is surrounding. You put something under, surround. The Holy Spirit is with you in the baptism, not necessarily in you. That's filling. We're never commanded to be baptized of the Holy Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And filling means to occupy all of the parts. You can take a glass and turn it upside down and put it down in a pan of water and it will be baptized but not filled. Isn't that right? You can turn the glass up and fill it and take it out of the water and it will be filled and not baptized. Okay. So all of these ways of speaking about the presence of the Spirit in our life is crucial to relating to Him. <coughs> Gifts. Gifts are like regular appointments for a definite service. Gifts are like regular anointings for a particular service. And the gifts are designed to bring the body together in the way that each member supernaturally serves others. And so gifts are divided among the members of the body. Fruit of the Spirit is different. Everyone is supposed to have the fruits of the Spirit. One fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, meekness, faithfulness or loyalty, self-control. Everyone's supposed to have that. And if we have that, we'll never have any problem with the fruit, with the gifts, sorry. Peter Wagner years ago wrote a book called How to Have a Healing Ministry at Church Without Making It Sick. <laughs> the way to do it is to have the fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is inoculation against pride, animosity, envy, and all of the things that go with the divisions that come between people when some have abilities that others don't have. Now, the triumph over sin in our life, moving from Romans 7 to Romans 8, is a matter of the Spirit. When Paul says at the end of Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death, Romans 8, he didn't put a chapter division in there. Romans 8 answers that question. And you'll notice, I think, 20 times the Spirit is mentioned in Romans 8. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, I'm no longer in bondage to sin because now I have in me, not just with me, but in me, 
a person who occupies me so that now Christ in me is the hope of glory because that is the deliverer that comes and helps me see sin for what it is and to rise above it by the power of his presence. Now just quickly a few points to conclude. First of all, the spirit is the spirit of truth. And one way to move out of his influence is to speak falsely, to deceive, to mislead. Uh, the spirit is out the door. And he is the spirit of truth. And if we want him in our lives, we have to deal with that on the basis of truth. And if we do that, one of the things that will happen is our own words will then take on incredible power. Paul is a strange man. How did he do what he did? He just took off through the countryside and he showed up and talked. That's all he did. He showed up and talked. But he knew where his power was and so he didn't have to put on anything he just was truthful, he showed up, and he spoke, and here's what he said. When I came to you, brethren, this is 1 Corinthians 2, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Now actually, that's what much of our education tries to put off on us, is superiority of speech or of wisdom. And we have to get away from that. Paul had more of it than probably any of us will ever have. But he laid it aside. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, I didn't want to see in what you did the effects of what I did. I wanted to see in you the effects of what Jesus did. By the Spirit. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Is that how you plant churches in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He is the spirit of truth. And when we come to do his work, we simply speak his word and we rely upon the presence of the spirit with us to achieve the ends that he has in mind. So as we go about his work, we want primarily to be living in truth by the power of God. We live in truth. We acknowledge the presence of the Spirit of God in what we do so that we don't try to achieve outcomes. We watch for him. And we invoke him. We invite him. We acknowledge. We live in truth. We acknowledge him. And we invoke him into what we're doing. And his gracious presence as a person, which we acknowledge, accompanies us and does the work which God has in mind to accomplish. Thank you.
So uh, take, uh, take two minutes, turn to somebody near you, and just say what stood out to you from, uh, from what Dallas shared there. <laughs> I missed the question. What did he say? He said, turn to someone. Sort of like the, we had. So out of what he what he've said, you need to kind of have pop a question. Oh, you and okay, two okay. other people. Yeah, and oh, so so we have. Oh, we're gonna have to ask him a question. Yeah. Yeah.